Right. Well, I just have uh, one announcement for you this morning, and that is San Francisco is on the horizon. And that is exciting. And uh, I want to read to you a, a passage in Scripture that I felt like the, the Lord put on my heart for San Francisco, and uh, perhaps it will be the theme. But uh, the reason why we're going is because, <clears throat> one, you know, as, as God closes one door, he opens up another. I mean, you know that. And we always uh, want to be in the nations, and that's where we love to be. Uh, we know that there in, in God's world, there's no plan B, there's only plan A, and he does move us where he wants us to go, and we believe his sovereignty in moving us to the right places. And so, in other words, though we might want to be in the nations overseas, by God's sovereignty and providence, he has us right where he wants us. And so I want us as a church to have confidence in why we're going to San Francisco. We're going there because God wants us there. We're going there because they desperately need the gospel. Of course, our own backyard does. And of course, Italy and France and all of uh, Europe and Asia and Africa, the different places that we could, of course, be going to. But San Francisco desperately needs the gospel. I'm not going to make an argument that they need it more than anybody else. If they're lost, they're lost. Your neighbor's lost. They're just as lost in the same hell they're going to as somebody across the globe. And so they need the light. They need the light. San Francisco is a very dark place. A lot of you guys know because of the things in the, the news, it's, it's been atrocious just to watch. It's even hard to watch people just smash uh, you know, glass and take as much jewelry as possible and, and to get away with that. Uh, upwards to $40,000 people are getting away with because nobody wants to stop it. You know, the reality is we might be disappointed in that. We might be frustrated in it. But, you know, the, the, as Jesus said, the blind leads the blind. You know, and, and so if the leaders are blind, the people will be blind, right? So why should we have an expectation? Why should we put our hope in politics? We're not going there to politically change San Francisco, we want to see transformation. That's what we want to see. And so I, I couldn't think of a better passage to think about. In the, in the Reformation, they used to say something like this. It was kind of their slogan. After the darkness of, of uh, you know, just Catholicism and, and just seeing the, the rampant uh, injustice of, of taking people's money and because they're lying to people saying they're in purgatory and you could pay a little bit more money and get them out as if that could happen. And so they would they would abuse their leadership. And, and because of the abuse of leadership, people were lost and they didn't have the light of the gospel. They weren't preaching the word of God. And so their slogan was after darkness light, because as Martin Luther came in and Calvin and all the reformers came in, and the Puritans later, they kept central the word of God. They preached the word of God in their heart language so that they could be saved. And I couldn't think of a better passage to talk about than John 1, 1 through 13. I'm going to read this, and as, as you read this, and as you, you maybe even put this in your journal as you pray for San Francisco, let's not be overwhelmed with all the things that we see in the news. We can. We can sit there and, and I'll tell you, a human heart will try to fix it with human means. But you can't. You cannot do that. 
It's impossible. If we waltz in there trying to change things and, and try to help people even strategically change the city. I'll tell you what, we're not doing that when we go there. We're going to release the gospel. The gospel is the only thing that will transform people's lives. And bringing the light of the glory of God. And asking God, as 2 Corinthians 4, 4, to, to take those blinders off. Because the devil, the God of this world, has blinded people from what? The glory of Christ. And man, they will see if we live this out starting today, if we get right with God and right with each other, we gain boldness, as it says in Ephesians 6, we have the boldness that, that, that Paul was asking for to release the gospel, then they will see the glory of God on the streets of San Francisco. It'll be us. Christ in us. The hope of glory. Colossians 1.27. So the, in the beginning was the word. This is Jesus. And the word was with God, and the word was God. And he was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. It's just beautiful, even that scripture. Let me read it again. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The reason why cities are hopeless is because they don't know this passage. They don't know where to find life. They don't know what light is because they live in darkness. The light shines in darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. The only way they will is if God is merciful and takes off those blinders. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. And he came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. Let us be John the Baptist, humble. Unworthy to tie even the sandal, just to even, even to be in his presence, let alone baptize him. It was unthinkable to baptize the Son of God, as we saw earlier in Mark 1. He was not the light, and neither are we, but yet in Christ, Matthew 5 says, go out as light and salt. But he came to testify about the light. There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world and the world was not made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. But listen to this. This is the hope. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Even those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Let's believe as we go to San Francisco, don't worry about finances, God will take care of them. Don't worry about the time off of work, God will take care of that too. Don't worry about all the details. Be concerned about your life. Be concerned about preparation. Be concerned about how are you going to prepare yourself to be the light of to be salt in the streets of San Francisco. Yes, we could go anywhere, and we will go to many places, Lord willing, wherever he might take us. But for such a time as this, in one of the most broken cities in the United States of America, let us go in there with confidence, knowing that, no, not we are the light, but he is. And as we go in there, we, can, we will see transformation happen on those streets. Humbly, watching God do his work, Watching him do what he's been doing for the last 2,000 years. 
Let's see it. You ready? Awesome. Sign up. And that's it. All right. Now to Mark. Okay? Those are not always the easiest transitions, but... All right, here we go. So, speaking of a family, though, and in all seriousness, the true family of God, that's the title of this message this morning. People thought he was crazy, people thought he was a fraud, and then others thought he was Lord. And so as we go through this scripture, I think that we're going to finish off chapter 3 here before we go into Christmas break, but uh, we'll pick up with verse 20, Mark chapter 3, verse 20 to 35. So we're going to finish this. Well, let's just go through a few passages or the few verses right here to begin with. Number one, his family thought he was crazy. The most important thing, the most important question that you can answer on planet Earth, we've said this over and over and over again, and I believe it, is who is Jesus? Because that determines whether you're in the family of God and you can call him father or not. And he thought that his family, his blood relatives in Nazareth thought he was crazy. Verse 20 says, and he came home and the crowd gathered again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. When his own people heard of this, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying he has lost his senses. And so as he came home, as you remember just reading through the last uh, three chapters, really, uh, since August, since the beginning of August, we read through this and we saw that his popularity began to grow and grow and grow. And so Jesus, after he chose his 12, after he deals with the Pharisees of the Sabbath and, and, and so on and so forth and, and, and picks Levi, his, the crowds were growing. He was healing the sick, casting out devils, conquering Satan himself in the desert, if you remember, and then finds himself with mobs of people. He had so much so that he had to take a boat to get to the other side because they were about to, it says in the scriptures here in the original, he was about to be crushed, literally by people. Crushed. And so he couldn't even eat a meal because he was so about his father's business. And he went home back to headquarters, which was Capernaum, and his popularity continued to grow and what happened was his family began to take notice. I don't want Mary, the mother of Jesus. He didn't want his son to be crushed. His family were perhaps embarrassed uh, of the way he was acting. You know, Jesus was the, if you can imagine this, you know, growing up, if you have kids now, he grew up perfect. In fact, he, Mary was the only mom that could actually say, well, my son's perfect. And he really was. And all your kids are not. <laughs> and even though you might have an inkling that maybe they are, but no, they are not the son or the daughter of the living God. But he was perfect. And how we know that is Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things, yet he had no sin. He was perfectly obedient. In fact, at age 12, it says here that he kept increasing in wisdom and stature and the favor with God and man. And you saw that when he was 12, he went uh, and was doing his father's business. He, he had a hunger in his heart. He, he was already teaching and people were marveling at what he knew. Can you imagine reading the Bible, reading the scriptures or reading good books 
and having such clarity of mind. None of us have ever experienced that. Right? I mean, so you just drink the coffee or uh, you know, wake ourselves up and, and do different things, but you know, we might have we might might read it a, with a little bit more clarity, but 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 he had an undistracted mind. He was he had straight A's in school with the perfect motives, with no pride in boasting. He was perfect. And just just think about that. I don't know if you, if your mind ever just is sanctified imagination of just thinking about Jesus and how. And yet, he wasn't, you know, it wasn't as he was little and he was trying to take after his, his dad and, and carpentry or some say masonry and, and you know, whatever it might have been, his father's trade, working with his hands. He, he, didn't, he didn't just say, hey, you know, dad, you, know, you don't really have to work this hard. You, you just could, you know, go like this, voila, and then boom, a table appears and, and some chairs and, and you know, and he, he didn't do that. Why do we know that? Because in John 2.11, this is the beginning of his signs. And the first sign was in Cana of Galilee, turning the wine or the water into wine. And then at that point, he manifested his glory, it says, and his disciples believed in him. In other words, that was the first glory miracle. He didn't, he was not showy. He didn't just show off his miraculous abilities. He waited. He was humble. He waited to the perfect time. Of course he knew why he was, why he came. He knows that. In fact, his mom knew that. In fact, maybe, maybe his mom, Mary, was just wondering, you know, he doesn't look like a savior. I mean, <laughs> you know, I mean, he's perfect and he's sweet. He's kind. He never gets into trouble. People like him. He's fairly normal Jewish boy. He once got lost, and that terrified my husband and I. But other than that moment, I told him, I scolded him, and said, never do that again. And of course, he never did that again. He was normal. He was an incredible teacher. He has profound wisdom and knowledge. And he spoke with such authority. In fact, it says in Luke 19, 48, the crowds were hanging on every word. Do people hang on every word that you say? Just incredible wisdom and favor with God and man. And then all of a sudden, at each 30, things began to change. You saw early in his ministry, he's doing miracles and signs and wonders and all these amazing things. And, and for the most part, it seems really cool. It seems, seems awesome. I mean, yeah, he's, he's being bullied by the religious folks and, 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 and maybe even others, you know, they, they're kind of a little turned off and, and moving the other direction. But for the most part, everybody's near him. Everybody wants to get a taste. Everyone's bringing grandma on their shoulders, trying to get healed and, and a benefit. We'll see later a free lunch at the five, feeding the 5,000. And there's lots of benefits of following Jesus. He came for one reason, and that was to seek and save the lost. And all the things that he did was to prove that this message is true. So he knew that 2,000 years later, he wouldn't be walking physically on the earth as people would. But as they proclaimed this message, people would be saved. And that's the important thing, that the, that the scriptures were being made, solidified in the canon. It was the final measure that we have, the scriptures. 
But then, all of a sudden, they decided to take him in custody. They come down, they're like, I'm a little worried about this guy. Mom's like, okay, you know, he might be, you know, someone might really kill him. Because, you know, if you remember in Luke 4, 16 to 29, he started preaching in Nazareth in his own hometown. What did they do to him? About to throw him off a cliff. They were going to do that here in his hometown. What are they going to do over there or not his hometown? We better get down. We better help Jesus out a little bit. We better take him into custody, which that word custody comes from Mark 16, 6, 17, which is with the same word used with John the Baptist. Take him into custody. Take him into jail. We need to bring this guy back home. We might need to sit him down and say, hey, look, this might be getting a little out of hand. Can you imagine doing that to the son of God? Taking him into custody, protecting him from the pressing crowds. Because why? They thought he was crazy. They thought he lost his mind. He lost his senses. What did it say about, you know, Mary, of course, in Luke chapter 1 is a Christmas story. Mary told that Jesus would be the savior of the world. So she wasn't, she wasn't in any unbelief. I mean, she was genuinely concerned about her son. But what about the rest? What about the brothers? What about the siblings? In John 7, verse 5, it says that Jesus' brothers didn't believe in him. In Mark 6, 3, James, Joseph, Judas, Simon, the half-brothers. In fact, Jesus even has sisters, as it says. He was what we know, what we could say conservatively, is that he was born one out of, one out of seven. He had a, quite a family, and, and they saw this normal man grow up to do normal things, and then all of a sudden, it got way out of hand. In fact, maybe even for yourself, as you grew up in your household, maybe in an unbelieving household, and they watched you, and they watched you grow, and all of a sudden, you go to this place called Antioch, and then you go home for a Christmas break, they're like, what happened to you? Who are you? You need to stay here. We're taking you into custody. <laughs> it's going to be the longest Christmas you've ever known. As a little side note, also Mary, the fact that she birthed many children after Jesus, she could not possibly be the perpetual virgin, as the Catholics say. She's not. That's a little side note. Has nothing to do with anything, but just a little side note in case you have Catholic friends and, and they say, no, she's a virgin. She's a virgin. No, no, no. She's not. They had, Jesus had siblings, half brothers. But you know, I want to ask you a question as a way of application, even for this is are you embarrassed of Jesus? You know, as you sit around the dinner table at Christmas, you know, as you sit around and talk about and people ask you, how was the season and how was that Miami trip? I thought you guys, you, you know, you, you went to where? You went to Miami? What did you do there? Oh, it was just this church thing. You embarrassed of Jesus. You know, it's interesting. It says in Luke 9, 26, it says that those who are ashamed of Christ, Christ will be ashamed of you before my father. And that is not a way of guilt trip. It's just the scriptures. And you know, we all need help with that, right? 
I think all of us, I think that's why Paul said, just give me more boldness to proclaim the gospel of Ephesians 6. We all do. We're not perfect. We are sheepish at times. We are afraid of rejection. We are ashamed. But I think the heart of hearts, I think inside, I think if you love the Lord and you're really, truly a part of his family, I think there's something in here saying, oh, I'm not ashamed. And if I had to, if I had to, oh, I would proclaim Christ in front of everyone because he has changed my life. But I know at times we do miss opportunities. And may you have boldness this Christmas break to preach Christ. Because he is our Lord and Savior. And they need to know that. They need to know that there is forgiveness. That really is what Christmas is all about. This baby coming into the world, and he was normal. <laughs> I mean, he wasn't born normal by any means. He's born a virgin, from a virgin. That's pretty miraculous by the power of the Holy Spirit. There's none like him. But he, for 30 years, he was normal. Until the wedding in Canada. And then everything changed. And beyond that, he was not normal. In fact, we need him. Because one day we'll face a holy God. One day we're going to face him. And we don't have to be afraid of God. We can call him Holy Father because of what he did. Amen? The second part is that the religious people thought he was a fraud. In fact, so far as they would say that he had a demon. Now, that's hard for us to understand that, right? I mean, just even looking at the life of Christ just for the last so many months and then coming to the conclusion that what he's a, a what, excuse me, he's a, he's got a demon. Now, listen to this. We're going to read a few more verses here in verse 22. We're going to read to 30. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying he is possessed by Beelzebul. And he cast out demons by the ruler of demons. And so they came down from Jerusalem. It's about 100 miles. And they just wanted to check out, hey, you know, I just want to see if, what's going on with this Jesus? You know, like sometimes if you're jealous of your friends, you just want to kind of keep a little bit more of an eye on them. In case they're doing something, you know, they keep doing, you want them to keep, maybe kind of catch them into something wrong. So that you might pin them. It's just kind of the same idea. He's coming, they're coming down. They, uh, they, they wanted to check on Jesus. They wanted to just see if they could trap him, if they could find something wrong with him. Of course, they didn't have the right heart. And they go so far as to say he's possessed by Beelzebub. He's possessed by a demon. And in fact, all the power that he has to do all these miraculous things is, is by the power of the devil. And he called them, them to himself and began speaking to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. It's just sheer foolishness. There's no logic. If a house is divided against itself, then a house will not be able to stand. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he is finished. He's done. But, if, but no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit has never has forgiveness, but is guilty of eternal sin. 
because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. And so the context of this is Matthew 12, 22 to 23. Then a demon-possessed man, which is sort of ironic in a way when you think about this. A demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus and he healed him. So Jesus, being the more powerful God here, totally eradicated the demon so that the mute man finally could speak. And all the crowds were amazed and were saying, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? Is this the one? Is this the Messiah? Is this the Son of God? So how do they respond to this miracle? He's got a demon. Hey, that's the only logic. So we traveled 100 miles by foot. No airplanes. No little pedal jumper. No Cessnas. They were determined. They were determined. And so they came. Why would they say such a Maybe this is one last ditch effort to pull them away. Say, look, if he just says, look, this guy has a, a demon. Did you hear me? A demon. In other words, don't follow him anymore. Follow us, the ones that don't have the demon. Ironically, they were the ones who had the demons, weren't they? You know, atheists wouldn't even say this. That's a hard sell. I mean, atheists today don't even say that. I mean, when's the last time you talked to an atheist? And they said, yeah, you know, Jesus is a demon. No. They don't say stuff like that, do they? When was the last time you talked to anybody on the street? For any other religion? I mean, even the Muslims don't say that he's a demon. See, he's a prophet. Peace upon his name. What would possess someone to say that the Son of God has a demon? Other than Satan himself. So who is Beelzebul? Basically all that it means is that it's the ruler of the demons. And it comes from the name Baal. If you remember him? Or the God of the, the Canaanite God. That's basically what they're associating Jesus with. And ultimately what they were saying is that this power that comes from Jesus, it has to come from two different, one of two places. Either really, he is God, and it is who he says he is, and it does all these miraculous things in the power of God, therefore we must submit to him, or he is, it comes from Satan, and we must not follow him. He's a fraud. And so, of course, by way of conclusion, they said, it's, he's a fraud. He comes from Satan. Don't follow him. Continue to follow us in the ways of God and you'll be fine. And how foolish is that? I mean, Jesus just gives a plain illustration. He just says, look, okay, how foolish is this? If Satan wants to kill, steal, and destroy, right? I mean, we all recognize that. We all, we all understand that. They, they knew that back then. They had a theological understanding of hell. They had a theological understanding of Satan. They, had, they understood that from the scriptures in the Old Testament. They said, look, if this guy wants to kill, steal, and destroy, okay, if that's, if that's what he wants to do, then why would, he, why would he go against other demons? Why would he cast out other demons? Why, I mean, why, why would he do that? Why would, if, if he did that, if he, if he worked against his own kingdom, the whole thing would crumble, and he, he, he would lose. Why, why would he do that? Why would I do that? If I'm, if I'm, of, if I'm an agent of Satan... 
I'm going around doing good. I'm healing people from their diseases. I'm bringing people to the Father, to God. I'm explaining the scriptures way better than you guys. Why would you do that? And then, of course, then he goes down and he talks about, or a few verses later, he says that the strong man needs to be bound first. So if I'm an agent of Satan, I go into the house and I want to take his property, and what's his property? His property is oppressing all of the world. It's oppressing the cities in the world. It's oppressing you and me. We were born in sin. And he blinded our eyes, every single one of us. We had no choice in and of ourselves to choose God. We had no power to choose God. We were agents and children of wrath, Jesus too says. That's who we, that's who we were. There's, there was, he, he, he had total, he has, he's the God of, the, of, the, of this world. He's the prince of the air. He, he rules and reigns over this planet. Today, and that's not hard for us to see that because we're looking at the news. We're like, yeah, we can see that. We can see more of that than the work of God even sometimes, right? And so who's the strong man in Satan? In order to go, in order to change the world, in order to bring transformation, I got to go into the house. I got to tie that joker up and then I, and then I can take possession over the whole house. And so that's exactly what he did. He came into the world and he destroyed the works of the devil, it says in 1 John. And that's what he was doing here and they didn't like it. The true agents of Satan were religious people. And I'm going to make an argument today. They still are. They still are. Religious people are the worst. Because they have knowledge. They have insight. They have some revelation. But they don't follow God. They have a legalistic, hard heart. They hate God. And so, in Colossians 1, 13 and 14, it says, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's exactly why he came. He bound up Satan. He was demonstrating that by, by just simply saying the words, Go! And they had to flee. If you remember that. Multiple times. Come out of them. And they, and they just, that's sheer power. How in the world could you say, oh, that's Satan telling the demon to go? It just makes no, no logical sense. Well, welcome to the mind of the world. Think of people who are not saved. Think of the, the worldly system. Think about politicians who are evil. And, and, and think, of, think of the, 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 the world leaders there's no logic. There's no wisdom. There's no understanding. Only God can give that. Ephesians 1, or 2, 1 to 4, you were dead in your trespasses and sins and in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, as I just said earlier, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them... We too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind. We were nature, we're by nature children of wrath. Jesus is the stronger man that binds the strong man. And he rescues us 
from the power of evil. Romans 16.20 says, The God of peace will soon, soon crush Satan under your feet. And Hebrews 2.14 and 15, this is the worst of all the enemy, the enemy of enemies. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. And so Jesus, with all that illustration, he says, look, in verse 28, he gives a very severe warning that if you, even us today in this room, were to attribute the power of Jesus to Satan rather than the Holy Spirit, you would perish forever. You know, and there's a lot of confusion revolving around the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And if I were you today, I would definitely pay attention. Because this is a very important doctrine that many, even Christians, think they've committed. And I know when I was walking with the Lord early on at 18, I know that I struggled with that. And I remember calling my roommates and calling uh, and having this, uh, did I commit this sin? Is this, did I do this? I mean, it terrifies anybody, doesn't it? It's terrifying. To think, if I commit a sin, like one sin in the Bible, I would be destroyed forever, even as I walk, even still. Not just, you know, when I, if I were to die, but just you're already stand condemned in the flesh as you walk and eat and drive and fly and do whatever. It's extremely important doctrine. But is this a contradiction to what God said? He forgives all sin. He, he removes sin from the east, as far as the east and from the west. I mean, he forgives you. I remember your sins no more. Is this a contradiction? I mean, look, he says, I'll forgive everything. Well, now in the New Testament, it's like, well, I'll, now, you know, I take that back. It's just uh, this one thing. Sounds a little confusing, doesn't it? Like, well, what, what is it? The Old Testament Jeremiah, I mean, that promise, and don't remember our sins no more. I mean, or in this, now in the New Testament, that way, is it, is it somehow did it switch? What is he talking about? What does he even mean? Truly, I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven, the sons of men. Whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. It's because they are saying he's got an unclean spirit. What about if you talk bad about Jesus? What about if you and me just have a thought about Jesus? It's not so good. You just run across, or something wrong across your mind, you're like, curse you, Jesus. You don't really mean it. It's just the thought that runs across your mind. You just, if, if he was right here, standing here, like, do you really, you know, Jesus, do you really mean it? No, of course I don't mean that. I don't know where that comes from. Is it just these thoughts, these fleeting thoughts? Is it, you have a bad day, you know, God allows something atrocious to happen in your life, and now you're angry with God, and you're mad at God, and you're running away from God, and you have a season when you're running away from God? I mean, is this what it means? I mean, you're blaspheming God, you're cursing God, you hate God, I just don't want to run away, but then all of a sudden, you no longer have those thoughts? Are you just, is that it? Well, you had those thoughts before, now you're guilty of the eternal sin. No, what is it? What about this? You know, Paul's testimony in 1 Timothy 1, 13 to 14. Even I, Paul, was formerly a blasphemer, a blasphemer and a persecutor, and a violent, right? He murdered people on behalf. 
in the name of Christ. He's murder in the name of God, not Christ, in the name of God because people believe in Christ. Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant. What an amazing testimony. With the faith and the love which are found in Christ Jesus. Why was this sin, this particular sin, so unforgivable? What made it different than just even having a bad thought about God? Or cursing out loud? It's horrendous. Is that is. Remember in the Old Testament they kill you for that. Because Jesus did everything in the power of the Spirit. When you walk, when you just just read through all four gospels, look at all the evidence. You can read more than a carpenter. You read that book? Yeah. It's like 15 million copies sold. You can read that book, you can read it from cover to cover. You can read Lee Strobel's book, Case for Christ. You can read all these books. And you can know, then you can go to Life Group and see lives transformed. You can go to the nations and see the nations transformed. You can see miracles in your own life, miracles in other people's lives, and come to the conclusion, he's got a demon. You know why? That's the most atrocious sin, the most the unforgivable sin, is because you totally cut yourself off from the only thing that would save you. It's a final, permanent decision to have knowledge of God, clear evidence, and turn around, even in the same sentence, and say, I reject you. And friends, I'm telling you, that is the most dangerous thing that you can do on this earth. most dangerous is to have to be enlightened which we'll get to in a second in Hebrews and to then realize at the end full understanding fullness of understanding that he is the son of God he must be the evidence is so clear what else could he possibly be and then say forget him I'm going my own way J.C. Ryle says this in the 1800s. What then is the unpartable sin? It is a combination of, listen, a, of clear intellectual knowledge of the gospel with deliberate rejection of it and willful choice of sin. It is a union of light in the head and hatred in the heart. What a great way to put that. Such was the case of Judas. We must not flatter ourselves that none have walked in his steps. In other words, look, this morning, what is that's meant by this passage or point number two is to both comfort the afflicted, which we'll get to in a moment, but we want to afflict the comforted. We want people like if, if you're on if you're on the cusp of of you know anybody else or anybody listening. You're on the cusp of, of having, and you're the one who has knowledge, and you've seen enough of the church, and you've watched your parents, and people are pleading with you, and you're like, you know what? Forget this man. Forget this God. And you are in some serious trouble. William Hendrickson says this, for penance, they substitute hardening. 
for confession, plotting. This is, of course, being, this is the Pharisees, people saying that he has a demon. Thus, by means of their own criminal and completely inexcusable callousness, they are doing themselves. Their sin is unpardonable because they are unwilling to tread the path that leads to pardon. For a thief, an adulterer, and a murderer, there is hope. And even that brings great comfort in the room, doesn't it? The message of the gospel may cause him to cry out, O oh God, be merciful to me, the sinner. But when a man has become hardened, so that he has made up his mind not to pay attention to the promptings of the Spirit that is so key, because the Holy Spirit is wooing not even to listen to his pleading and warning voice, he has placed himself on the road that leads to perdition. That was by William Hendrickson, a great expositor. Now, I just want to take a moment to try to help you understand another very important doctrine. Sorry, this is a little theological this morning. This is so important because if anyone ever asks you, what is the impartable sin, you'll have an answer. 1 Peter 3.15 says, you better have an answer. Have an answer because the world is wondering. The world is asking. The world is curious. And we have answers. All right, Hebrews 2, two th- I'm going to read Hebrews 2, 6, and 10. Most terrifying passages in Scripture. Merry Christmas. <laughs> Hebrews 2, 3, and 4. How will we escape if we neglect so great salvation? After it was at the first spoken, at first, after it was at first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders, by various miracles and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit. It's clear. What other evidence can I possibly give? Look, if you stand before Christ, knowing what you know, and you reject Him in this church, if you sat in that purple seat. And you stand before him and say, I never knew the hell would be hotter for you. And that's what he says. Because you know, you know, your family knows. The United States of America, for the most part, knows. Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift, and have been partakers of the Holy Spirit. Those, that's some pretty strong language there. I would not ignore that. And have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. And then have fallen away. It is impossible. Listen, the Bible does not use impossible just flippantly, by the way. It is impossible to renew them again to repentance. Since they again crucify themselves, the Son of God, and put him to open shame. Wow. Okay, Hebrews 10. <laughs> 26 to 29. For if we are going on sinning willfully after receiving. Now, it's interesting, sinning willfully in a moment. After receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Context matters. Now, we're not talking about, okay, I just, you know, let out a cuss word. I know I shouldn't be doing that. I totally willfully did that because I was angry, and now I have no, no way of bringing me back to repentance. It's not talking about that. Because you're in Christ. And the Bible says you will sin still. Romans 7. And 1 John. 2 John. 
clear. So don't worry. It's not just some little sins that we... It, 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 it's, not, it's willfully rejecting the only provision for salvation after you've tasted. It says, but, terrify, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses, making by way of comparison. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted, it's very interesting language, insulted the spirit of grace. That God would be so gracious to you to bring you into life, to bring you into a family, to bring you into this room, to hear the word of God, to understand the word of God, to provide for your needs, to be virtually a perfect witness of the goodness of God in your life. Fair. And to say, you know what? Not interested. You can have your God. That's it. There's no other door to open that would bring you to Christ. There are will to bring you to any sort of salvation. You've rejected the only door. The narrow one. The narrow one. They've been fully exposed to the gospel, miracles, testimonies, and yet they walk away despite overwhelming evidence of who God is. And maybe you have friends like that. And they're like, man, I don't understand this. And they were, they were like so in. They were so with us. They went on mission with us. They were with us. And then they, it just looks like they have no fruit on their life anymore. They've left the church, or they've left God, and they and they may even say things like, "Well, you know, I, I you know I don't really need the church. I don't really need the Bible. I don't, you know, I'm just I, I'm going to do my own thing. I have my own little thing. Me and Jesus." No, you have your own religion. Is what you have, but it's not Jesus. But there's still hope, though. There's still a level of hope. Because they still have a pulse. And we don't know who's committed this ultimately and who hasn't. Amen? Don't be the FBI agent walking around the way. John, I've uh, finally detected our first. <laughs> Is that you? No, I'm just kidding. But we don't want to do that. We, we, don't, we don't want to walk around trying to figure out who's committed the unpardonable sin. In fact, if anything... Let God uh, afflict us in our comfort. Let him afflict us in our comfort. So if I committed the sin, that's the question. Why don't you ask yourself that right now? Is Have you committed this sin? You know, I, I, others have brought this up, and I think this is worth saying. I'll, I'll just give you two examples. One of which we've already kind of harped on a little bit, but of what if you spoke evil of Jesus and you know, I love this, what Jesus says. He's like, you know, he's standing up there on the cross, right? What does he say to those who have rejected God, who actually killed the Son of God? What does he say to them? What? Forgive him, Father, for they do not know what they're doing. 
So is there forgiveness for even the most atrocious sin you can think of killing the Son of God? Absolutely. Absolutely. Some people might say, well, you know, the bigger sins, you know, you know adultery, murder, you know, just some big sins. I think, you know, you do that, well, I think you're done. Really? And what happened to King David? Total forgiveness. Doesn't say anything here about any particular sin. It doesn't say anything about you cussing, swearing, committing adultery, uh, lust, envy, whatever you name it. Greed. No, no. Those are all forgiven. Every single one of them. What about if you're blaspheming the Holy Spirit in a way that you say, maybe to your charismatic friends, you say, you know, we don't believe in that stuff. I've heard it being said too that you know you just be careful now. If you don't believe in the, the, the you know the kind of the charismatic gifts, you're blaspheming the Holy Spirit. It has nothing to do with that. Of course, the context has nothing to do with that. When you attribute the works of a pure, righteous God to the works of Satan, which means you, that is the ultimate rejection of God Himself, of Christ Himself, which is the only provision of salvation, you have finally committed that sin. And if your heart remains hard like that, you'll die. You'll spend the rest of eternity in a lake of fire. That's what he says. But everything else is for you. So this is what uh, J.C. Uh, Ryle says. You can tell I like this man. We may lay it down as nearly certain that those who are troubled with fears, that they have sinned the unpardonable sin. Listen. I want to make sure in this church that you don't spend the rest of your life on earth worrying if you've committed this sin. I want you to have confidence this morning. And hopefully this will give you a little bit of confidence. We may lay it down as nearly certain that those who are troubled with fears that they have sinned, the unpardonable sin, are the very people who have not sinned it. The very fact that they are afraid and anxious about it is the strongest possible evidence in their favor. A troubled conscience, an anxiety about salvation, and a dread about being cast away, a certain about the next world, the hell, or heaven, and a desire to escape from the wrath of God will probably never be found in the heart of that person who has sinned the sin for which there is no forgiveness. It is far more probable that the general marks of such a person will be, will be utter hardness of conscience, a seared heart, the absence of any feeling, a thorough insensibility or a hardness again to a spiritual concern. There is such a thing as a sin which is never forgiven. But those who are troubled about it are most unlikely to have committed it. To be comforted. Amen? Good. All right. Let's finish this. Mark chapter 3, verse 31 to 35. Then his mother and his brothers arrived, and standing outside, they sent a word to him and called him. Of course, now they're there. They've arrived. Come with me. We're taking you into custody. We need to take you back to Nazareth. You know, just give you something to calm you down. <laughs> Sounds so silly to me, doesn't it? To us, we know the Lord to do that. In fact, if anything, they should have encouraged him. Just keep going. 
Keep going. Do your father's business. A crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Answering them, he said, Who are my brothers, mother and my brothers? He was, he was fine. He, he, he got interrupted. He was teaching. I don't know what he was teaching. But oftentimes, it's, you know, the guy taken up off the roof, and, and Jesus, he's perfectly okay with interruptions. And so he takes him up on this. He's like, you know what? This is good. Because remember, he only says and does what the Father says in his name. He's fully submitted. Even in, up to the interruptions. He's looking around, or looking about those who are sitting around him, and he said, behold, my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother, my sister, and my mother. You know, it's so cool as you look, if you fast forward maybe, I don't know, 60 to 100 years, you can look at the fact that, of course, Mary was there in the upper room with his brothers at the resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15, you can read it. You can also read it in Acts 1. They're all there, they're ready, and saved. They believed. Jesus' half-brother, James, who is the, it's just incredible, he was the head of the Jerusalem church. And, and Jesus made him into an all-star there. I mean, and then Jude wrote, or James, he wrote the letter. Of course, you know that. And then Jude, he wrote his letter. And he's, they both say, interestingly, in the beginning of their letters, I am a slave of Christ. And someone who hates his brother doesn't say that, do they? No. They were transformed. They were made new. They were his. He said, and God used them powerfully. Family came around. This is the true family of God, Jesus says. Those who are born again. John 1, 12, I just read that earlier. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Romans 8, 14 to 17. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received the spirit of slavery leading to Fear again, that's the sinful fear as we talked about before. But you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also and heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we might be glorified with him. And then in 1 John 3, 1 to 2, how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we would be called the children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. Behold, our beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him, because we will see Him just as He is. And the only people that can have that kind of privilege is to be His, is to be born again. To be fitted for heaven. To actually have the clothes, if you will, and the soul of a son. Or a daughter. And then John 3, of course, the incredible conversation he has with Nicodemus. And just even the silliness of that is like, well, what am I supposed to do, Jesus? Is, you want me to go back in my mom's womb? And, and you, know, you want me to just go back in? You know, I'm an old man. Now. You want me to go back in to the belly and then come out again? I mean, come on wrong with you? Have you ever read Ezekiel 36? 
about the, the heart that's hard, like yours, and that only God can make that soft? You were born in this world in the flesh. And you're fitted for hell. You must be born again so that you're fitted for heaven. Amen? That's what that passage is all about. And only those who obey the Lord, he says. You must believe, but also obey, right? John 6, 40, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Amen. Luke 11, 27 and 28. You can tell that it's not about family relations. And that's what Jesus is talking about. Yeah, they're, they're, they're my brothers and mother. I mean, they're outside. I know them. they're the people from Nazareth. They're the ones we do Christmas parties with. Yeah, I, I know them. I know. Thanks for pointing them out. But I'll tell you one thing. Who is my mother and brothers? Who are the true disciples? Who are the true family? They're right here. They're the ones that follow me. No matter what. No matter what. They follow me. That is my truth. And so while Jesus was saying these things in his teaching, remember in Luke 11, and one of the women in the, one woman in the crowd raised her voice and said, Oh, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you were nursed. It's kind of awkward in a way, too. <laughs> He's like, uh, I, I, okay, yeah, I, I mean, I, I, um, I, yeah, I, I suppose. Um, but, but on the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word and observe it. In other words, obey. I am thankful for my mom. She has no power to save. Matthew 17, 5 says, While he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed him. And behold, a voice come out of the cloud. This is probably one you want to listen to. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Listen to him. And all the red letters in here, are the, you, you want to pay attention to those. They lead you to eternal life. All the words of Scripture is God breathed. If you want to know just specifically what Jesus said, you have it. Isn't that wonderful? We have it in our pocket. We have it everywhere. We can access the Word of God anytime we want. True conversion, or the family, is marked by obedience. And that's convicting. John 8, 31, so Jesus was saying to these Jews who had believed in him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. John 14, 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. 1 John 2, 4, the one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. 1 John 3, 24, the one who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. We know by this that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. We must obey. It's fruit. We know where he is. If there's fruit on our life, you know, I once heard it said, would there be, if you're standing on trial, would there be enough evidence in your life to convict you as a Christian? 
what they say, I mean, with people that, no, trust me, they are because of this, 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 this. There's enough evidence to show that you are his. The Bible says it's obedience. The Bible says it's perseverance. It's endurance to the end. It's not in and then, ah, forget it. Life's too hard. The demands are too much. In fact, if you know him, his demands aren't burdensome. They're life. J.C. Rouse says this, so let it be with all true servants of Christ. Let nothing turn them for a moment out of the narrow way. And that's for you. Or make them stop and look back. Let them not heed the ill-natured remarks of the enemies. Listen to this. I think this is clever. Let them not give way to the well-intentioned but mistaken entreaties of the unconverted relations and friends. Your family and friends sometimes can be the most compelling voices in your life. Let them reply in Nehemiah's words, I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. I thought that was great. He's doing the work of God. It, 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 those who follow him and, and then turn back and from the plow and they turn back and say, oh, they, oh, maybe I should go back. It's, so, it's, so, it, it, it's, it's more compelling to do the things of this world. It's like the fourth soil or the third soil, the, 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 the cares of this world and uh, the, the pleasures of this world. Sometimes more inviting, pleasurable than him. And if that's the way we feel, let's pray and get on our knees and say, Oh God, please destroy the flesh in me. I want to serve you. Apart from the grace of God, I would leave you. And same passage there in John 6, he says, Look, those who the Father draws to me, I will know by no means cast them. So if you're his, truly his, you're secure. Let them say, I've taken up the cross and I will not cast it away. Don't look back. I want to end uh, with one quote here from C.S. Lewis. I think this is very fitting to this passage. You know, C.S. Lewis was an atheist. Of course, many of you know that. You read his books. and He left the, his childhood faith. Grew up Christian and Christian home, he left and he, when he was 15 years old, he abandoned the faith. Later at Oxford, Oxford University, he was then challenged by his Christian friends and of course, you know, the grace of God actually got to him. It was irresistible. It got to his life and surprised by joy, one of his books, he wrote this, you must picture me alone in that room in Magdalene. Night after night, feeling whatever my mind lifted, even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him, whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God. And I knelt and prayed, perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant, reluctant convert in all of England. pretty fascinating and it's how God pursues us even in our unbelief how that we could curse God we could walk away from God but yet if we're his he keeps us he keeps us and mightily he used Lewis so mightily of course you know that the one thing here that you need to know the purpose of this is that look 
In order to be a part of the family of God, you have to have the right view of him. And you need to obey him to be the true brothers, mother, family, sisters of him. And Lewis realized one thing. You could not be on the fence. You cannot sit there in these purple seats and be on the fence. You can't just, you, you cannot just like walk away from this message saying, nah. Maybe he was a good teacher. Maybe he's not really the only way. I mean, he's one way, not the only way. Maybe you have your own thoughts about Jesus. Maybe you're looking at these scripture passages and you're just not sure. But one thing, you cannot remain on the fence. You need to decide. You couldn't just name him as a teacher. Especially if he claimed to be God. That would be simply illogical. Listen to what he says. I am trying here, mere Christianity, I am trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I do not accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must never, never say. A man who is merely a man and said those sorts of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher, would he? He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he's a poached egg or else he would say he's the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither, neither a lunatic nor a devil. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it might seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. Friends, that's the purpose of Mark. And that's the purpose of why we exist. So that we might be the family of God. Amen? Amen. All right. I want to challenge you just to be in awe of God. Just to, you know, don't take these words lightly. Don't do that. Especially this Christmas as you... Sing Christmas carols and just go over the Christmas story with your family. There's nothing ordinary about this man, this God man. He truly is Savior. He truly is Lord. He truly is family. But you must be born again. And so I ask that if you're not, if you you struggle with unbelief and you struggle with just thoughts about Jesus and they're all over the place and you're just like, Lord, I, I, don't, I don't know what I believe. I, I don't know where I stand with him. Just take a moment during worship and even go ask someone to pray for you. Say, I, I, I want to give my life to this man, this God man. I want to give my life to the Son of God, to the Savior of the world. I want to be saved. I want to be born again. I want to be a part of this family. I want the pure bliss and joy and glory. I want, to, I want to feel his presence. I want to know his love. I want to live for him for the rest of my life.
You can do that today. You can do it today. And if you just need comfort this morning, and you're one of those people that just, even from this message, you're like, man, I just, I was that guy. I just, I feel so tormented in my mind because of my sin. I don't have, a, I don't have that peace to know that all my sins are washed away. I want to know that. I feel like I have committed the sin of the unpardonable sin. I feel like I have blasphemed God, blasphemed the Holy Spirit. And be comforted today knowing that all sins are forgiven. And he even says the worst sin will put him up on that cross. He says, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And that same forgiveness that the Roman centurion received, the latter part of Mark, Yen says, ah, this is truly the Son of God. You know what? He received this forgiveness. As he looked upon who? Jesus. So Father, we thank you, Lord, that that's all you're asking us to do is to look upon you. Hebrews 12, 1 to 3, it just says to look upon Jesus. The author and the perfecter